Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. In this show, we look at the stock market events, what's making the market go up and down. We look at economic data. We also look at legislation that's in process that might impact your money. In the Plan Your Prosperity section, I talk about different financial planning topics. And finally, in the last section, Ask Peggy, you get the opportunity to put a question on my Facebook page, also called Ask Peggy, and I can help provide an answer over the air. So let's get started. This data is for the week ending September 21st, 2018. And that week, the Dow went up 2.25%. The S&P 500 went up about 0.85%. The NASDAQ dropped a little. And there's been a lot of things weighing on the NASDAQ recently, like Tesla and some of the Facebook issues. It dropped by 0.29%. Gold was up a little under half a percent. Oil was the big winner for the week, up 3.01%. And I want to talk about markets in general right now. Not really so much what happened this last week, but just to provide some ideas and guidance and maybe a warning of sorts. Certainly, this market, this bull market that's been going on for about the last 18 months has been very, very impressive. The market has been happy with the deregulation. They've been happy with the easing up on requirements. They like the friendly business structure. They like the tax cuts. Everything is really with the wind to the sails for the stock market right now. I always get nervous, however, when markets are responding much better than normally anticipated. Because since 1929, the long-term rate of return for the stock market is 11%. And we've certainly had, actually, it's not even 18 months. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's closer to about two years at this point. But we've had a very, very good market. The problem is something called mean reversion. We've had really good market environments since 1929 as well, and yet the long-term average is 11%. I have no idea how much longer this current bull market goes on. I don't know what makes it stop. I don't know how much more money there is to be made in it. But I always worry when things are behaving abnormally well, which the market is right now. It's really been on a tear. So be careful. Always look at your risk tolerance. Always look at when you need money. Always invest in the market related to your financial planning goals. Greed gets people in trouble. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with making money in the market when there's money to be made. But sometimes people will look at something and they'll go way outside what their traditional risk tolerance would be. Or maybe they need the money in a year and they're like, but the market's going up, so I'm going to put it in the market for this next year because I don't need it for a year, 
when financial literature pretty much universally suggests that any money you need in a year probably shouldn't be in the stock market because of the risk of the market going down. But people get really excited and they don't want to miss out. So I'm not being Debbie Downer today, but I am saying just be really careful. Be really careful that you don't let your enthusiasm get the better of you because should the market stop going up and start going down, I don't want you to get caught in a financial planning position that you weren't anticipating. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update portion of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. In this week's edition, I want to just briefly mention that there continues to be noise around tax reform tweaks. There was a bill that got out of committee this last week called Tax Reform 2.0. There have been a lot of things that have been proposed. There's really not the sense that these bills are going to become laws. We're very close to the midterms. Of course, if everything in the midterm elections stay just as they are, then these things might become laws next year, but they would have to be reintroduced into the legislation. Instead, I heard a theory that the idea is the Republicans want to propose suggestions that don't involve raising taxes. So if they lose the House in the midterms, and if then the Democrats suggest raising taxes as a solution to something, they have something actually on the record to say, no, we wanted to do it this way. It makes as much sense as anything because it feels like there's a rush to start a lot of things that don't look like they're going to end. And so the idea that they're doing it to make a political point is the best explanation I've heard. So the second piece of news this week is Betsy DeVos losing the lawsuit that was um, designed to, what losing the lawsuit where she wasn't implementing a rule designed to protect students who had lost a lot of money in for-profit education loans. So let's unpack that sentence a little bit because I'm not sure it even made sense to me. The Obama administration created a law that said that students could get relief if they had taken out loans from for-profit colleges that went defunct or if there was a big issue with their accreditation. So basically, if they got their degree from a school that ended up not being a real school, they didn't have to necessarily pay all of that money back. They could get some student loan relief. So that law was passed, but then Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, has not been implementing it. And that law has been just sitting there on the books, and she's not enforcing it, and people are still having to pay their loans back. So finally, um, a group sued and said, no, this law exists. It has to actually be enforced. And the group that was suing won the lawsuit, but it did not actually lead to Betsy DeVos having to provide the loan relief. Instead, it led to a committee that's going to study the situation. So it's kind of a good news, bad news. The good news is, yes, they have to do it. The bad news is they're kicking the can down the road. 
So we'll watch this, see when the rule goes in place. Unfortunately, right now, if I'm reading things correctly, it means that you still have to pay back the loan even if the school has gone under. It feels really grossly unfair. Hopefully something will change for the better on that soon. Now, the big piece of legislative news that I wanted to talk to you today about is a letter that was drafted from AARP, the Financial Planning Coalition, which is the Financial Planning Association, the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, and NAPFA, the North American Personal Financial Advisors Group. In addition, the CFA Coalition, Chartered Financial Analyst Group. So ARP, the Financial Planning Coalition, and the CFA Group all came together to write a letter to um, Jay Clayton, who's the chairman of the SEC, because remember, the SEC has put out a um, directive that's saying that financial advisors should act in their client's best interest, but remember, it doesn't use the fiduciary word, and they were going to do a beta test, and basically, they're going to solve the entire problem with a disclosure, that it was, there was going to be a disclosure that clients could read that would let them know if they were working with brokers or advisors and what the fees were and whether or not the advisor was a fiduciary. And so rather than legislating behavior, basically it was disclosing behavior was seen as this great solution. And the SEC said they were going to run a beta test to see whether or not consumers understood the way they were organizing it. The problem was the comment period on the rule ended almost exactly when the beta test also ended. So yeah, we're going to test this, but then we're not going to let anyone who understands the industry, like the Financial Planning Association, look at the findings to make an intelligent comment to the rule. So that all went on its way. So ARP the Financial Planning Coalition, the CFA, did their own testing, and they hired an outside group called Kleiman Communications Group, Inc., to do a test much like the SEC's beta test. And what they determined is that consumers don't understand the disclosure at all. Now, this letter is available, I believe, on the SEC site. It's also available on... Um, on the Financial Planning Association site, and I'm going to go ahead and post this letter on the Ask Peggy Facebook page as well because it's completely public. I think I can. In any case, maybe I can provide a link and put it somewhere else. So if you want to read the letter, you can. I'm going to highlight the main points from it. First of all, the overall level of comprehension of this was poor. People didn't really understand what they were looking at. The participants did not understand the key differences in the nature of services provided. So they didn't know what it meant to work with a broker versus an advisor, for instance. You know, technically a broker brokers in stocks and bonds and other investments, and they place trades for you. Advisors help you make the decision about what to buy and sell. They may also be able to place the trades, but an advisor takes a much more hands-on approach than brokers do. And one reason why this is so confusing is it's even confusing to people in the industry itself because there's been a lot of blurring of lines. And there's been a long time 
where a group that had a certain piece of legislation where they didn't have to act in certain ways as long as what they were doing was incidental to their business. You know, brokers can give advice, but as long as it's not the key thing that they do, they kind of got a waiver for that. So there's so many carve-outs. The industry doesn't really understand it. I suspect a lot of brokers don't really understand it. And the public has absolutely no idea that there actually are two different kinds of services being offered, and they don't understand how the compensation structure works. The reason it matters is because there are legal obligations that investment advisors have that brokers don't have. An investment advisor absolutely always has a fiduciary duty, which means they absolutely always have to put your best interest first. I discovered this a couple of years into being an investment advisor and was really blown away that it was ever an optional way of handling somebody else's life savings, but it is. And so it's fine to work with a broker as long as you understand they don't have. It's literally a legal duty, a legal obligation to act in your best interest rather than, well, of course I'll take care of you, which is not actually a legal holding. You know, we say things and then there's the law that backs it up. Investment advisors have the law backing up that they have to act in their client's best interest. Um, and then one of the confusion was, how are they monitoring the account? And if someone's going to monitor the account, then they have to be paid for it. But the monitoring the account piece of it, I think, is really, really confusing to people. I would argue two different ways. But the law here, or this, this finding says that um, participants in the survey thought their account was being monitored by the broker when it was not. They, they don't have to do that. An investment advisor monitors the account. The broker does not. We could have a completely unrelated different topic about what that means, and we'll do that in a future issue, an episode of the show. But for right now, just we'll leave it there. Very confused about fees and costs. When consumers saw what they were actually paying, they didn't understand all the different layers of fees. That's because there's a whole lot of layers of fees that really aren't disclosed very clearly. And so the consumers saw it and they were just kind of flabbergasted, didn't really know what was going on. They knew that there were conflicts of interest, but they didn't know what it meant. So the conflict of interest means if there's two mutual funds out there, and mutual fund A is offering a cruise for the people who sell the most of it, and mutual fund B is pretty much like it, but it's not offering a cruise. And if mutual fund A has a higher fee associated with it, if I don't owe you a fiduciary level of care, I can put you in the fund with the higher fee that gives me the cruise, and it, there's really nothing you can do about it. And so when people found out about this, they were pretty horrified. It was also very difficult for the consumers to figure out where they could go to get more information. They liked, there was, they liked the idea there was a place where there were questions posted, but they had trouble finding them. So overall, this SEC rule is as flawed as we suspected it was, but now we actually have data and proof. There's a giant study that goes along with it. Like I said, I'll try to provide links so you guys can find it on my Ask Peggy Facebook page. 
Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today we are going to talk about fringe benefits. And since it is the end of September and many companies have an open enrollment period in the fall, I thought this was a good time to give you some ideas, some things to look for, to think about, to help you choose the best fringe benefit package that you can. So first of all, let's talk about what fringe benefits are. Fringe benefits exist in companies, usually larger companies, where there's a menu of choices that you have, often called a cafeteria plan, and there's a certain amount of money that you have, and then you have to choose what kind of benefits you want. Maybe, um, you know, a lot of companies now, especially if they have a fringe benefit plan, probably the health care is definitely an option within that. But as part of that health care, maybe you want to choose whether or not you want to cover your spouse and your children. So you want to look at the cost of that insurance, compare it to other options, because we're also getting very close to the open enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. So it makes sense to look at what you can choose and to choose the best insurance that meets your family's needs at the best price that you can get. Sometimes there's a disability policy that's offered. Remember, if you pay the premium for the disability coverage, you get the benefits income tax-free, where if your employer pays the premium, you have to pay income tax on the benefit should you ever need it. There may be daycare that's offered. Sometimes there's um, life insurance is typically offered. So there may be a de minimis amount of life insurance that your employer is offering, and then you can buy additional life insurance over that. It's usually priced in per thousand dollars of coverage, so it can be really confusing when you look at the life insurance section to figure out what you're actually paying for that additional coverage. You have a human relations director for a reason. The HR department is there to help you. So you want to be sure that if you're looking at something like the cost of the life insurance and you don't understand what it costs, then you need to make sure that you talk to HR so that you can determine what the cost is. There might be a long-term care policy available. There's a few employers that are still offering that as a fringe. The great thing about long-term care acquired as a fringe, which is the great thing about fringe benefits at all, is if you enroll in them at first. So when you're first eligible to participate, if you enroll in that benefit, there isn't any underwriting, which means that you can have anything in the world wrong with you and get the life insurance and you don't have to worry about not qualifying for it. Now, if you wait and you don't enroll in the benefit as soon as you can, then there is underwriting associated with acquiring the insurance. Now, I'm a little hesitant to say that the underwriting isn't quite as strict as if you went out and got a personal policy, 
but sometimes it's not. So even if you haven't gotten a benefit and you know you have a few health issues going on, I'd go ahead and try to get it through my employer if the price is good anyway, because sometimes it's a little bit less difficult to acquire. That's because of the, that's because of the law of large numbers. Whenever you have a whole lot of people who have the same benefit, the insurance company is betting that most people don't use the benefit, and the people who buy the insurance are betting that they will. Think about homeowner's insurance, which isn't a fringe benefit, by the way, but it's really easy to understand. So everybody buys homeowner's insurance. Why? Because they're afraid their home might burn down or they might have a really major problem with it. The insurance company writes the coverage because they know your home probably isn't going to burn down. The law of large numbers said that for every incident that happens, there's a whole lot of people who have paid their premium all the years, and it works out just fine. So it's very important to work that to your advantage, enroll in those benefits when you first can. Also, look at things like long-term care insurance and make sure that you can continue to pay for it after you leave employment. Because if the long-term care insurance can't be purchased in retirement, it might not make as much sense to buy it because you're going to retire probably at 65. And so it might be a fringe benefit that wasn't as useful as you first thought that it would be. So look at the benefits. Also, has your life changed? Have you gotten married? Have you gotten divorced? Have you had kids? If you've gotten divorced, who's the beneficiary on your life insurance policy at work? It's a really good thing to check. So take some time now during open enrollment season, review your benefits, review your needs, and put together a package that will help you prosper. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. This is my favorite part of the show, but I really want you guys to reach out on social media to the Ask Peggy page or if you want to ask a question in a different format, you could go to PeggyDovyak.com, my website, and there's a place that you can submit questions there as well. So I would love to hear from you. So PeggyDovyak.com or Ask Peggy on Facebook. Today's question is, Peggy, I hear people talk about how my retirement spending is going to change over what I'm spending today, but I'm not sure what to do with it. And so what I would like to offer are some ideas that you might think about, that you might not have thought about. And I want to start out by telling you about a pet peeve that I have. I really hate rules of thumb. I know that to a certain extent, rules of thumb are there because they tend to be accurate, but I think they can get you in a world of hurt. And honestly, I'm not sure where some rules of thumb come from because I don't see it. I don't understand it. The rule of thumb that I'm going to address today is you will spend 80% of your current income in retirement. I bet you've heard that one, right? So whatever you spend today, you're going to spend about 80% of that in retirement. I just don't think that's right. I think what you spend in retirement is a complete function of what you choose to spend in retirement. Let me explain. 
So if you've got a mortgage now and you are, you know, paying off maybe some student loan debt, then it's very possible that when you retire, if your mortgage is paid off, the student loans are paid off, please let the student loans be paid off when you're in retirement, that you might be spending a little bit less, you know, and because mortgages can be a chunk of people's income each month, the lack of the mortgage sure might make you spend less money. But what happens if you're fairly successful and you decide you'd like to buy a vacation house? Well, you know, maybe you pay cash for it, but you probably put a mortgage on it. And so now just about the time your regular house is paid off, you've got a mortgage on a beach house or a mountain house. And yes, you can sell that property, probably, if things got really south on you. But most people don't buy vacation homes with the idea of selling them when they enter retirement. So now suddenly you've got as much mortgage as you had before. If you decide to keep your current home, maybe you put in a pool or the landscaping. I've seen a number of people who suddenly have all this time and they get all these ideas and they watch HGTV. That's not a plug. It's just a reference. And they decide they're going to go in and put an outdoor barbecue and waterfall and pool in. And suddenly they throw that year's budget completely off. So sometimes we spend more money in the beginning of retirement. Now, generally, that kind of does even out over time. But then once you're no longer spending money on fun things, you've got to figure out how you're going to pay for your medical stuff. Now, Medicare is good. The Medicare supplements are good. If you've got a secondary policy from your employer to serve as a supplement, that's good. But the medical costs certainly can be an issue as you age. More than that, long-term care costs begin to come into play. How are you going to pay for the last three years of your life? You know, maybe you sell your house and you use that as part of the income, but there's a cost there. And if you've got a spouse who doesn't necessarily need to go into a facility, selling the house may be an issue. Sometimes a mortgage against the house paid by your kids allows the kids to retain the asset where a reverse mortgage does not. And that's very complicated, probably an additional topic for another day. But in a reverse mortgage, that asset is likely no longer your children's when you die. So if there's a traditional mortgage that the children can pay, they can retain the asset. But there is another cost as you age. And I ran into an example of that this weekend when we've had a lot of rain in Oklahoma and my storm cellar turned into a hot tub. And suddenly I had water and I had to go and I had to buy a sump pump and I sumped it out. And then I had to go rent a floor pump because there was still six inches of water on the ground. As you age, you can't do stuff like that yourself. And you probably can't mow the lawn, and you may not be able to clean the house, and you can't do the odd jobs, because my husband and I were talking about how expensive it would have been to have hired somebody to come in, and then they're going to get some great idea of, oh, we need to blast the thing out and put in a new one. You know, I think I actually just need to caulk a crack. When you can't do it yourself, you pay other people to do it. That's the cost. I don't see it in financial planning literature even very often. It's all of those things that you are doing now that you're going to have to still have done, but you may not be able to be the one to do it. 
So I want you to be really careful as you project your retirement spending that you don't underestimate it. Because if you underestimate it, that will impact how much you save and you might not have enough money in retirement. I'd really rather you overestimate your costs and be pleasantly surprised than underestimate them and suddenly have a really big crisis. So be careful with it and be careful to add everything together and don't just use a rule of thumb because I think it's really risky. So in today's show, we talked about being careful of the market and realize that markets go up, but they also go down. So don't lose track of your risk tolerance. Be very careful you understand a relationship you have with any financial professional. Take some time and open enrollment to look at your fringe benefits. Make sure that you're enrolled in what you need to be enrolled in and allocate sufficient resources for retirement so you don't run out of money. Have a fabulous week. See you next time. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.